This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Laura Kelly, a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire, the authors of the new book, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. Jack and Jennifer, welcome to the show. Great to meet you. Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I am a writer and I teach in the journalism program at Boston College and in the education studies program at Yale. And I live in Gloucester, Massachusetts, which if listeners don't know is America's oldest seaport, currently celebrating its 400th anniversary. And Jack, could you introduce yourself? Jack Schneider. I'm a Bible. It's extremely long. I'm going to kind of have to bungle. Uh, I'm the Dwight W. Allen Distinguished Professor at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. And uh, I co-host the podcast Ember with Jennifer, and we are uh, the co-authors of the book we're going to talk about today, as well as another book that I think we'll have the very Thank you. So I have some questions prepared here, and my thought was that I would pitch one question to each of you, and that person can take the question, and then if your collaborator wants to add on, you can. If not, we can just go on to the next question. So this first question I had marked for Jennifer, if you would tell us about your collaboration. So Jack, you are a historian, you work in academia. Um, Jennifer, you're a journalist and also work in academia. So how did you come together and what has this collaboration allowed you to accomplish that you couldn't have otherwise done? connected now a number of years ago and we were we were both in the sort of public education advocacy space in Massachusetts at the time I was the author of a humorous blog in which I poked fun at the excesses of the what was then the bipartisan education reform movement that was really kind of at its most favorite state and, and Jack would often be at the state house testifying about what he saw as the limits of, of those policies. And so when, when I needed a co-host for the podcast, I thought that Jack would be uh, a great person to team up with. And at the time, I really hadn't thought through what it would mean to collaborate with an education historian. And now, after many years of working together, and we write together a lot, and we do the biweekly podcast, I can honestly say that that having a collaborator who's an historian turns out to just be so useful, because whatever the issue is, and I'm spending a lot of my time talking to people who are out in the world dealing with this stuff uh, you know, in their own communities, I can then turn to Jack and say, here's what I've witnessed. 
have we seen this before and how did it end? And so as a result, I feel like I have such a better understanding of the of, of sort of the long backstory of what's happening in and around our schools today. Just in case uh, I don't get asked about what it's like to work with Jennifer, uh, the thing that I try to say whenever we have an opportunity, which is that Jennifer is the most completely informed person I know about what's happening right now. And so I think we make a pretty good team in that if you want to talk about what happened yeah, five, 10, 50, 500 years ago, I generally have a pretty good sense of all. Uh, but if you want to know what happened yesterday or what's happening this afternoon, then Jennifer is like literally the best person in the States to <laughs> That seems like a really good collaboration and like more people should do that. <laughs> it seems really helpful to put the history in context with the present. So this is a book, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, about efforts to privatize schools. So commonly people may be familiar with charters and vouchers, but you also discuss related topics like undermining teachers unions, the expansion of virtual education options, and the idea that teachers may become low-paid independent contractors. Your stance is very clearly that these efforts to privatize education are bad, and you claim in the preface that public education is worth fighting for. Why? Jack, do you want to get us started on that? One of the things that Jennifer and I often try to talk about is the fact that students and their families have rights, you know, a legitimation system. They are being presented by opponents of what is often called school choice, but which we are talking about as privatization. And they are presented with options. And frankly, I would rather have rights than options, especially if I were Arab to, let's say, a student with disabilities. Uh, for oh, there simply may not be options today to out of the system. We're depending on where you live. If I were Harold of LGBT plus student who may live in an area where a variety of schools may say, no, we, we don't have a spot for you. I think that in addition to talking about the rights that people have in the public education system, I think it's really important to talk about the commitments that we have made as a society through our public education system. And that's very connected to a third thing, which is the idea of the public good as they fund public education with our tax dollars, not because we believe that the 50 million children as a enrolled in public schools couldn't possibly pull together whatever the cost of tutoring or a low-cost private school might be. And we actually had a system like years prior to the education system, but a decision was made by banning stakeholders, and this goes back to the what was called the common school and that. In the early to mid-19th century, the decision was made that we missed our democracy to the possibility that people would forego education or would receive an inadequate education, that there would be members of our society who not only didn't possess basic literacy numeracy, but hadn't been given the opportunity to participate as full-fledged members. Now, 
grants if you could tell an entire history. There have been many histories about the ways that people were excluded. But because of the public nature of that system, but as our understanding of ourselves as a public has expanded over time, right, as we have come to recognize the rights and the dignity of different groups that were historically they have been more and more fully system in a way that would not have necessarily occurred if it was a system. And if we are then looking about the commitments may, because it is a system that ostensibly so that we can see that there is at least a kind of acceptance, if not always conscious, of the fact that we do need to tax ourselves in order to ensure an adequate education for every young person in the United States. And if we stop thinking of that as something that benefits all of us and for which we are all collectively responsible, suddenly it becomes a lot easier to imagine a system in which we say, well, why would I be paying for the education of all these children who aren't my children? And we can then begin to imagine a world in which families have to choose the lowest cost option available to them because taxpayers are no longer willing to support the education of children of their own. And that's why we see so many of these various policy efforts described in the question connected to each other because if what you are trying to do is alienate people from this pretty high cost system that we have, right? We spend the better part of a trillion dollars every year to educate America's young people. And I can't think of a better expense uh, to be committing with our funds to. But if what you want to do is eliminate that pretty heavily expense that taxpayers are responsible for, then along with the option of, you know, a private school voucher, what you need to begin thinking about is how are we going to begin radically reducing costs? That's where you get things like the idea of virtual schools, micro schools, um, teachers as gig workers, schools without teachers where students just sit in front of tablets all day long. It's a very frightening world. And we just heavily to both we referred to the final third of the book is the black mirror section the book, but it turned out that it wasn't that at all. It was just the crystal ball section because we're already very much in the world that we thought we were really scaring people about. And it turned out we were just informing them about what we were actually. I would just add one piece to that. I'd pick up on that. You mentioned in your question, which you asked now some time ago, (laughs) (laughs) that that our point of view was very clear. And I think a lot of people were surprised by that. And they were surprised for two reasons. One, because we did, we were making the case that that a lot of different policies that appeared to, to have very little relation to each other, that we were arguing that, that they're part of a broader vision. But I think also because Jack is a scholar and scholars really aren't supposed to just put it out there, right? Um, and, and so here we are, fast forward a few years, and what Jack just said is absolutely right, that there is much less hesitancy on the part of proponents of this vision about hiding what their ultimate, that their ultimate goal is. And so now, if anything, our book feels like it's, you know, it needs to be made, the case needs to be made even more sharply. And I think that's what we're trying to do next time around. So you are... 
led right into the next question. So you open your new process with, we were trying to scare people. And you you had to write a new forward to the most recent addition to the book, even though the original book just came out, to say that privatization is advancing much faster than you anticipated with your first edition. So can you paint us a picture, and I'm going to start with Jennifer for this one, paint us a picture of the dystopian future, or as you say, the dystopian present that you're warning against with this book? Yes, the dystopian uh, future, which is coming rapidly, is one in which the burden of paying for K-12 education will be more and more shifted to parents themselves, and they have to navigate a complicated, unregulated landscape in which their kids have no rights, they have no rights, and the schools are empowered to discriminate. And it's a big part of the reason why Americans have been so hesitant to embrace this vision for so long, right? That anytime you put private school vouchers up for a vote, people vote it down. They don't, they're deeply uncomfortable with that idea that we're going to pay for for uh, either discrimination with tax dollars or for sectarian education with with tax dollars. So that, what I just described is actually moving towards us really quickly. Uh, we're now up to in the, where, you know, school choice proponents are, are calling this the season of school choice. Six states now uh, let um, uh, parents spend taxpayer dollars on the edu- quote unquote education option of their choosing. The goal in all these states is to reach what they call universal choice. And what, you know, we we were joking that we referred to the last section of our, of Wolf the Schoolhouse Door as the Black Mirror section. And I think people, when they said that, they, they were thinking in particular of our description of the goal of unbundling education from not just schools, but place more broadly that instead, just like you might divorce from your cable company and embrace an all streaming lifestyle, that's really the vision for schools, that you would choose an array of education options through a vendor and, you know, maybe a course here in the morning. Betsy DeVos described this brilliantly at a talk she gave in Cleveland where she had a rural student in the Dakotas and he would spend his morning working out in the bean fields, listening to a great book seminar. And then maybe he would go off to his internship at the John Deere uh, factory. And then finally, he might finish up at a local charter school. Well, of course, there are no local charter schools in the rural Dakotas because there isn't enough population to support that. And I think that's where, you know, people look at that and they think, this is crazy. This is a lonely vision. This is not what we want. So, you know, and you just said this, Jennifer, that vouchers are unpopular and people vote them down. You know in the book that most American kids are in public schools. Most Americans feel good about their local schools. Most Americans want us to have public schools. And as you said, vouchers are unpopular. So who's pushing this and how are they managing to be so successful? Jack, do you want to take that? Yeah, this is... The old street, or old Sunderlight, don't believe that the state shouldn't play a very powerful role in American life. Um, one of the things that Jennifer has uh, said has emerged for her as uh, a takeaway from 
our podcast and our writing together is that there is a group of folks who has been angry since the new and has been hell-bent on unmaking the kind of society that emerged after the New Deal during war. And you can really see it beginning to take shape as we are in the book during Barry Goldwater's run It was a really galvanizing time for young conservatives like Ronald Reagan, who at one point in his life had been a union leader and a supporter of FDR. And these young conservatives that came of age in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and built institutions. They were very effective at that. And so we see organizations like Cato, like the American Enterprise Institute, like the Hoover Foundation, like, uh, excuse me, the Hoover Institute, um, like, uh, like state-level organizations, right? When Mackinac, Satter, Michigan, uh, eventually the Gold Lover Institute in Arizona. You see these organizations not only being created, but also working together in a collaborating and effective way to lay the groundwork for long term policy goals. And they happen to have pocketed funders, right? So the Coke Rebels are a great example. Go to the origins of any of these organizations, and you find the Cokes or their father involved in some way. And the same is true for lots of conservative millionaires and billionaires who have worked to lay the groundwork, not just through the creation of these organizations, but through things like model legislation being proposed by the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC or through policy groups being floated to different state legislators in red states, where the idea was we can begin this long-term education campaign. And then there was an actual concerted effort to begin lodging small victories that, as it turns out, those on the left, at least the center left members of the Democratic Party, were complicit in aiding them in winning victories on the um, the best example of that would be charter schools, right? For those on the left, charter schools seemed like, to borrow a phrase from uh, the Cold War, the end of history, right? No longer does the right and the left need to fight over um, the role of markets in schools where the right would advocate for vouchers and the left would advocate for traditional public schools. Charters could be the final compromise, right? They are public schools that are governed by the state, but they have an element of choice and uh, the free market built into them. Well, for those on the right, charters were never the end game. They were always a way station. And you can see that folks like Cory Booker, who had stood on stage with people like Betsy DeVos, were in a very difficult position to try to explain their advocacy for school choice over more than a decade, in some cases for a couple decades, um, when folks like Betsy DeVos suddenly were coming out with full-throated support for vouchers. So a big part of this story is about patience, it's about organization building, it's about the creation of a larger policy agenda and work towards the realization of that agenda through smaller scale victories. And then another part is about effective mobilization of cultural 
And that's really what, what took us from this very slow creep to this sudden moment where the because those on the right who are supporters of public education, but who are very easily swept up in culture war activity around gender, race, religion, are in many ways being very effectively alienated from public schools by folks who really are are manipulating uh, culture war in a way that advances an agenda that is not about culture war at all, but is about pulling art institutions, and in this case, or our public institution as an institution, that they're using this as a policy window to accomplish something that otherwise would possibly do accomplish. So following up on that idea, why are they pushing this so hard? And it's clear that this is something with historical roots. It's clear that this is an ideologically consistent position. But one thing I try to emphasize, I teach a class called Urban Education um, at a liberal arts school at a private liberal arts school and one thing i try to do there is convince the students that you're invested in public education whether you went to it whether you're going to work in it whether your kids are going to go to it or not because you live in society and a society benefits from public education system so one thing that remains unclear to me is these people excuse me and groups that are pushing forward the privatization agenda it seems to me that purely out of self-interest, they would prefer to live in a society with a robust public education system, and yet that doesn't seem to be the case. So I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Jennifer? I think that that is such a good question because I am frankly baffled by the same things that you we're watching and states enact policies, and not just in education, but in all kinds of spheres that are guaranteed to make life for people in their states worse. They're gonna make their states less equal. And they're also gonna, you know, it seems like they are going to undercut their own desire to be economically competitive. And how, so how is it that that then becomes, you know, the vision that they're, they're running on or enacting once they're in office? So a lot of this just, it's a reflection of our deeply polarized and gerrymandered political reality, right? That when when citizens are actually given the chance to weigh in on these policies, whether at the ballot box, as, as voters did in Arizona when they voted on a universal voucher program and overwhelmingly rejected it, only to have their own legislators override them, or in a place like Idaho, where, you know, a grassroots group called Reclaim Idaho gathered, you know, hundreds of thousands of signatures to in support of more funding for public education and you know they found something fascinating that even even people who were really troubled by the culture war claims you know that that argument those crt messages were getting through they still were really opposed to the idea of dismantling public education they thought they wanted to see public education get more funding so in some ways this agenda is just another example of how what happens when when state government becomes really unrepresented unrepresentative but i do think that you're absolutely right that that it seems like 
that you know people are invested in in a vision that is unpopular and going to make people's lives worse and how gated does your own life have to be in order to protect yourself from that so what i often ask people to do is you know when you because education seems to be viewed as its own world pay attention to all the policies that are being enacted and ask yourself just the simple question is this policy going to make life more or less equal in the state and over and over again you see that they're kind of rolling back the clock on things like child labor protections or something as simple as a you know a texas uh there was a a mandate in texas that that workers who work outside um in texas it's been 120 degrees in the last week that you know they have uh they are guaranteed water breaks so you know the governor just rolled that back what is the thinking there you know who benefits when life is made worse and i think that's where that's what we really have to wrangle with right now so once again you have previewed the next question i know on your own podcast have you heard you recently covered the grassroots organizing of educators, parents, and students trying to slow down or stop state and local efforts at privatization. So who is fighting back against privatization and is it working? Jack? Can I start with that and then, and and I won't be long. Yeah. Um, so we're, you're gonna hear at the end of the show about the new book we're working on. And I spend my mornings, my mornings writing and my afternoons talking to people on the ground. And I can assure you that there is a tremendous amount of organizing happening. It just doesn't get anywhere near the amount of attention that, say, a mom for liberty does. And the places where where organizing is really effective, it's when unusual coalitions are forming, uh, where students are front and center, where people really understand that the threat to public education is, you know, is part of an old story and they're not, you know, they're, they're very reluctant to, to see their, their institutions privatized. But it is really amazing to see how when there is an opportunity for the public to weigh in, they're weighing in loud and clear that, that they want a robustly funded public education system that raises up the next generation of citizens that teaches honest history and the actually the voices that are calling for di- very a very different vision are are in the extreme minority so i can't tell you like how encouraging it is to talk to people all over the country and realize that there's a, a different story playing out it's just one we don't hear enough about reported podcast here soon at a scholar named Wilhelm. And this is a great book. Came off of his school, University of Western Washington. I guess it's Western Washington University. And one of the things that came up in that conversation was the importance of ensuring that all stakeholders see themselves in public schools and see the public schools as belonging to them. And that has really important implications for advocates of education. It can't simply be that public education is an issue of the left. If it has not been historically, right? But if the way that advocacy unfolds is that 
support for education is tied to support for public education is tied to issues that are very divisive, which is not to say that they are wrong. Uh, so I'll give you an example with the teaching of critical race theory, right? Um, or, or the teaching about this, right? If, if that is done in a way that those on the left, including myself, would feel fantastic about, right? At the expense of those on the right, whose kids are involved in the public schools, right? I think the risk there is that those people will be further alienated from public education and no longer see any purpose that was supporting it. And that's, I think, a really important and not obvious thing for us to bear in mind is that winning a victory is actually self-disembodied in a lot of consistent, which is not to say that we don't stand up for the rights of LGBTQ plus kids, right? We do. They have rights, actually, fortunately, and they matter. And we need to make sure that that's the case in every school district and every school. Right? The same with regard to teaching an open and honest history of uh, America's uh, racial past and dealing with America's racially unequal present. Right? There's a lot that is political, but which is also an ethical issue, right? And for many of us, a moral issue that involves standing up and fighting for things that actually will probably alienate some people. And that's unfortunate but necessary. But there's also a way to engage in advocacy and activism in a way that is cognizant of the importance of maintaining broad-based support uh, for public education. And I think we're in a moment right now we are at particular risk of losing sight of that. And if we do, what we end up with is support for public education among, let's call it, half of the American people. And that actually won't work, right? Uh, that's like having half of the American people supporting the idea of social security, right? The system doesn't work that way. And that plays exactly into the hands long-term vision, again, it's not just about moving schooling out of the realm of democratic politics and into the realm of market. It's also about innovating taxpayer support for public And that's another thing that really needs to be part of the advocacy message is to help people understand, sure, the voucher you get may be equivalent to for people expenditures that your state has right now. Maybe the vouchers were ten thousand dollars for them, but it won't be in five years. In five years, the vouchers going to be worth about half that, and five years after that, it will be worth about half that. And pretty soon, there will only be vouchers available to families living in poverty, which will only afford them some kind of online option for their kids, which will be vastly unequal to even what middle class families are able to provide with their kids and helping them understand that is, I think, really important and, and potentially non-artisan way of standing up for public education and helping people understand what's at stake. So building on this idea about activism and advocacy, 
you say in the conclusion, you reiterate that you're trying to scare people. And my question was, once they're scared, what should they do next? And you alluded to some things, but I don't know if either of you wants to say more about that. Um, some folks in New Hampshire the other day, and that's a place where you're, you know, if you want to see an answer to your question about people pushing back, um, you, it's it's happening all over New Hampshire, and it's exactly what Jack was talking about that that these are not the these campaigns are not partisan. People don't want to see their schools become partisan entities. But one of the women I was interviewing. She, you know, we, our book has wolf in the title, but she says that actually a more appropriate metaphor for what's happening right now is a coyote, that coyotes have a strategy for making it appear or sound like there are more of them than there really are, that they, they split up and I live on a tidal river and we have across the, the river in the woods, you would think there were a million coyotes. There are actually only four and one of the things that you see happening in these communities is that they are effectively putting together coalitions and starting to hash out a vision of what, what they think schools should be for. And what you will find is that this totally crosses partisan lines, that wherever you go, people have a much more ambitious and frankly expensive and expansive vision of what schools should do and what they'd like their kids to have access to. And I think that, that that also needs to be sort of part of the conversation. We can't just be against something. We can't spend all of our time clicking on links um, about, you know, terror. here's the terrible thing that Mobs for Di Liberty did this week, right? Like it's on us to figure out a way to talk about what public schools are for that broadens the tent of people who believe in it. Right. And that's really the only way that, you know, like, yes, we wanted to scare people, but I think now that that people really are scared. And so now they, you know, they need to connect with one another, start talking to their friends and neighbors and be part of a broader conversation about why we have schools. The only thing that I would add to that, I think Jennifer's exactly right. One of the things we talked about is the fact that folks are determined to dismantle public education are actually pretty small in their overall numbers. And Mobs for Liberty is a great example of that. Right? The outsized media coverage that they get would suggest that they have membership of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. But if you actually look at you know, who the folks are who are, for instance, filing petitions to ban books, right? the numbers get pretty small. And the metaphor that I was using in some of the conversation bars is that of both of the market that really this is an effort to try to scam Americans by engaging in this kind of door to door activity where you then bring them on as potential recruits of further members and in multi-level marketing and the political version, right? The thing you're selling is conspiracy. The thing that that thrives on is the great. idea that you are a legitimate left the status quo. And one of the things that's then important to remember in our advocacy is not that moms from liberty is a dangerous right? Which they're being labeled as. Now, I think there is a case to be made for that being true. 
But I think it's also the case to be made that they are a fringe organization with very few actual members and even smaller numbers in terms of Afghans all working on the ground, going to school board meetings, challenging books in libraries. And what that does is it actually deflates their ability to recruit people into this multi-level marketing scheme, where if what they are selling then is a conspiracy that people view as illegitimate, fringe, and unappealing, right? it's very hard to then bring people on to start selling that to their own friends favorites, as opposed to if they're in danger, right? if the left has labeled them as a threat, suddenly there's a kind of legitimacy there. Right, uh, you're you're Avon now, right? You're herbalized. You're Cutco. You know, you you've got a product that you can actually sell. And so, I think a, a really important part of advocacy has to be about undermining their ability to sell answers. So, after our last question, I will ask you, what are you working on now? So, we are we're working on a book that is aimed at the most general audience we're capable of writing for. It's meant to be a guide for anyone who just is trying to make sense of why the schools are on fire. And, you know, our a lot of people read our book. It's done quite well. Um, but it's still, you know, it's not accessible to people who don't know anything about schools, to people who aren't familiar with how school districts are organized. And they can't rattle off acronyms. And so we need to write for those people, too. And I think what's kind of interesting is that, you know, where we're accepting that we're accepting that, you know, the, that sentence that I just spent all morning crafting. It's possible that somebody's going to skip right over it, but they'll look at the graphic on the page. Don't read the sidebar. And so we are trying to make that the case in as really as simple and compelling a way as we can that that public schools are endangered and that fighting for them is really important. And also holding up those models that I was talking about where communities are, are effectively pushing back. So when I interview people in the afternoons, when I've done my writing, I ask them, what kinds of questions did they get from people? And what would they like to see a book like this address? And people answer without any hesitation at all. And it's been enormously clarifying and frankly, kind of liberating that, you know, you wouldn't believe how how little you actually need to say when there's this amount of urgency. One of the things that we're trying to do in the book is help people understand the connection between the war that's happening in public education and the long-term agenda of what we spend most of the will have store out right? Because I think most Americans are aware right now that there are things like hands on transgender kids using with a bathroom that they look a little bit for themselves. There are attacks on transgender athletes. There are bans on uh, NCRT or um, there are popular issues around, for instance, uh, cheap programs, African American history course. People are aware of all. And I think people often see as separate the voucher bills that have rolled out in a couple dozen red states. Um, and one of the goals of ours in this project is to help people understand these things are integral connected, that actually the policy agenda had on being active 
about the culture war activity that is happening, that is drawing people into the movement, who otherwise would not at all be attracted by the idea of money. It shouldn't and Jennifer alluded to this, but you know, trying to then write for the broadest possible audience also means not writing for hard-carrying members of the radical left. And that's actually been a real challenge. You know, I think that we're, we're defending ourselves if we think that we are going to change a lot of uh, red state Republican diehard voters here. But I think that it is quite possible to write a book that allows those folks to say, well, in this chapter, Jack and Jennifer have got a little bit I'm not a fan of this particular chapter, but there is some good information. Um, and and I think that one of the things that's been exciting for me in this project, as well as listening conversations that we've been having on our podcast with scholars, is the idea of beginning a car about some common ground once more. Um, that actually was something that I was very committed to early in my career. Uh, I, for instance, started a blog with Michelle Wheat, much reviled by the left, where Burr worked in Washington, D.C. as superintendent there, and her collaboration with folks uh, who made Winning Superman um, and as being a kind of symbol of the book reform movement. I love her work in the nonprofit sector. Um, and and I believed firmly that she and I could find things that agreed upon and that might allow us to then shave off the fringier elements of world each believe that actually would not make for stable and sustainable policy in education. And I just haven't seen it as long practical to be a common ground person in the past 10 years. Um, it has felt very urgent and necessary to be somebody who is, you know, uh, a, a bit more towards the vanguard. Um, but, but I do like the idea that is at the heart of this book of once more trying to carve out some on the ground to say, actually, there's a lot that we can still go on. And that those of us who are working so hard to divide Americans from each other are smaller in number than those of us who see something or all of us, particularly education. Well, thank you so much to both of you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. And this was fun. Thank you. 